for the reading of God's holy word. The title of our sermon this morning is The Roots of Seeing the Unseen. And I would direct your attention to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18, which we just read. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The entire city of Thessalonica was fomenting incomplete uproar. And the situation reached a feverish pitch. The, the Jews assaulted the house of Jason and hauled him and some of the brethren uh, before the rulers of the city, crying out, these that have turned the world upside down have come hither also. Now you fast forward to the present. And the contemporary church in the West faces no risk of ever being accused of turning the world upside down. Why is that? It is because you cannot turn something upside down if you are deeply embedded in it, if you are in league with it. You, you must stand above the world and live outside the world and not be of the world to have any hope of turning it upside down. So in what ways are we embedded in the world? And how exactly are we supposed to change that? Well, we're going to consider the answer that God supplies in the scriptures under this theme of seeing the unseen. So this morning we're looking at the roots of, of seeing the unseen, and we'll focus on the fight to see clearly, to see truly, the fight to see clearly and to see truly. And then this afternoon, God willing, we'll look at the fruits of seeing the unseen, which in brief entails living for another world. Living for another world, which incidentally is the only way of transforming this one, as we'll see this afternoon. So this morning we begin with concepts, and this afternoon we turn to the consequences. We, we start this morning with considering biblical principles, and then this afternoon we look at the punch, which comes in terms of its practical implications uh, in our lives. We're going to note three things this morning uh, with the Lord's help under the theme of the roots of seeing the unseen. First of all, we begin with seeing. So first of all, seeing. What is the, the nature of seeing? And that, that means that we have to, we have to define the difference between two types of seeing, two ways of seeing. Paul says here in this passage, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. So we, we look at the things which are seen with our eyes, right? What you've heard me say before, our anatomical eyes, right? A physical sight 
is something that is done with our, our body. But Paul also speaks of seeing the unseen. And, of course, if you're reading thoughtfully, you know, the question comes, if it's unseen, then how exactly do we see it? How can we? How can we see it? Well, whereas the first type of seeing is done with the body, with our, our eyes, this, this seeing, seeing the unseen, is done with the soul. The soul has its own uh, faculties of of sight, the believer, the one who's in a state of grace, the one who has been redeemed with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the believer can see with the soul things that are not present to the eyes. By contrast, the unbeliever fixates only on what is seen with the physical eyes, and they are spiritually blind to the unseen saving realities. In Paul's first epistle to Corinth in chapter 2, verse 14, we read, The natural receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And so that the unbeliever left to themselves is left with this inability to see. They're blind. And, and what is that result? That, that yields ignorance. It means that they, they are ignorant to a vast body of knowledge, a vast body of reality. And so we grope by nature. We grope about in the, the pitch blackness of the darkness of our own souls. And we desperately need to see. So what does the Lord do? The Lord comes and he provides what those in darkness need. He provides light. He provides light, first of all, outside of us. He brings us his word, which is a light to our feet and a lamp uh, to our path. And then to the believer, he also provides light inside the believer by enlightening or illuminating their minds in their effectual calling. And this work of God's grace produces faith, hope, and love, each of which sees something, right? Faith sees by believing what God has revealed in his word. Hope, too. Hope is the, the vision, if you will, of, of confident expectation. It's a sight, the vision about what is absolutely certain regarding what God has, has promised. And love, too. Love looks on with sheer delight, enters into the enjoyment of what God has disclosed, and longs for more. But in all of this, the Lord Jesus Christ is at the dead center. He's at the center. And in a sense, of course, he's at the center because he's at the center of the word. He's at the center of the Holy Scriptures. And he's at the center of heaven, which is revealed to us, which we're told about in, in the Holy Scriptures as well. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, preeminently, he is the object of faith, he is the object of hope, and he is the object of love. 
And with the eyes of the soul, through faith, hope, and love, the believer looks upon him in all of these uh, respects. And so faith, you think of faith, faith is the eye of, of the soul. You know, we read in chapter 5, verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And so by the work of God's saving grace, the believer has, if you'll allow me to say it, the believer has spiritual superpowers, superpowers of perception. That is the supernatural ability to see what is invisible with their souls. And yet, though it is unseen, though it is invisible, though it is unseen, faith is actually seeing what is Faith is, is not, you know, looking at uh, some reflection of what is. It's actually seeing what is. It's seeing reality itself. Hebrews 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You think of the example of Elisha's servant. When the Lord comes and opens the eyes of Elisha's servant and he sees the mountain and it's full of horses and chariots of fire and so on, he is just then seeing what had already been there. He was enabled to see reality, to see what is, what had already been there, but he had not been able to perceive. And so there are these two, two ways of seeing, and really these two ways of seeing correspond to the difference that the Bible describes as earthly mindedness on one side and spiritual mindedness or heavenly mindedness on the other. These two types of seeing correspond to these. To be earthly minded means for our minds to be glued to the earth, to be thinking about seeing and preoccupied with the things of the earth, to be spiritually or heavenly minded is to be exercising our souls to see the unseen, those heavenly realities and what, what is spiritually perceived. You think of the interchange with Jesus and Thomas after the resurrection. In John 20, verse 29, Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And then you go to 1 Peter 1, verse 8, speaking of Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, there's faith, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Well, the Lord does more. The Lord has provided his people with means for seeing. He's provided us with means for seeing. In other words, he's furnished us with, with spiritual spectacles to aid our ability to see more clearly, to see more truly. It's like, you know, a microscope, which enables you to see things up close that are small, or a telescope, which enables you to see things which are huge, but far away. Both of those reveal what is beyond the naked eye. The Lord's given us means Spiritual spectacles to help us see. And the first, of course, is the word, Holy Scripture. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so we sing in Psalm 119, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things. 
out of thy law. This whole idea of concentrated contemplation, the biblical idea of meditation is utterly indispensable to spiritual discernment, to being able to see clearly. We need to, as you've heard me say more than once, we need to slow down in solitude. Not to be rushing in a hurry, not to be skirting over things, but to slow down in solitude. Use the means God's given to us. As you know well, promises in the word are windows through which we see the promiser. Enable us to see. And Christ remains both the promiser and the thing promised. It's his promised presence that lies at the heart of all that is promised, both in this world and in the world to come. His presence, the ability to see it spiritually. He's also given us the sacraments we call the visible word. Right In the Lord's Supper, God has appointed, for example, he's appointed bread and wine. And, and we can engage these with our physical senses. We, we see the loaf of bread. We see the wine in the cup. We can, we can smell it. We can taste it. it we touch it with our, our lips, our mouths, and so on. But that's not all that's happening at the Lord's table. As you well know, the communicants at the table are actually called to discern the Lord's body. Right? The, the spiritual engagements at the table are not just carnal. They're not just physical. We look beyond the physical elements to the spiritual and often felt presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the supper. We see what is unseen as he opens the eyes of faith in the supper and we feed upon him by faith so that while we have bread in the mouth, we have Christ dwelling richly in, in our hearts. And so there's a, a set of spectacles to help us. We also have prayer. And this is one that may, may surprise you. We don't think of prayer as a means for seeing. But the Bible says that it is. Prayer is not just directing our voice to heaven. It is lifting our eyes in faith to heaven. Right? Prayer draws us upward beyond what is seen to the unseen. Prayer glues our gaze on the one who is invisible, as, as is described with Moses in Hebrews 11. What's that mean? Well, that, that's actually helpful because that means that prayerlessness, a lack of prayer, prayerlessness is actually equivalent to the perpetual gaze on what is seen. It's a life spent only looking at what is seen. It also helps us with hypocrisy because hypocrisy is lifting up our voice without lifting up our eyes, the eyes of our soul to the Lord. We sang in Psalm 25, it opens in verse one, unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. And we sang verse 15, mine eyes are ever toward the Lord. Psalm 123, unto thee, lift up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens, behold, as the servants, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden under the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God. Psalm 141, verse 8, but mine eyes are unto thee, O God the Lord, in thee 
is my trust. You think of the, the narratives in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh, that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. It's a means of seeing. And this alters, of course, the focus of our prayers, because if the eyes of our soul are riveted chiefly on the unseen God of glory in heaven, then we understand the logic of the Lord's prayer and we concentrate where it concentrates. The first three petitions relate to God himself, to our Lord Jesus Christ. So that we focus, first of all, on the hallowing of his name. That's what we desire most. Priority number one, Lord, hallow thy name in thy worship, in the preaching of the gospel and spread of the kingdom. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. And then we turn to the things that pertain to our needs, which furnish us with what is necessary to pursue those first, those first priorities that the Lord gives to us. It explains, as we've been seeing in Hebrews and will continue to see in Hebrews, the, the nature of New Testament public worship, right? This is, we have Rome, and Rome is, is the, the polar opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Rome, uh, Rome comes in its worship, and it's sensual, and it is earthy, and it is tangible, and they have their icons, and they have their paintings, and they have their statues, and they have their incense, and they've got all of the other priestly uh, things that go with that. They're beautiful ornaments and vestments and apparel and, the, and their instruments and all of the other things. What's going on? That, that worship pulls in the opposite direction from what God intended. It pulls us downward to the material, the sensate, the earthly things. Whereas New Testament worship in its simplicity and purity, in its spirituality, is adorned with plainness. It's bare. Why? Because all of the focus of New Testament worship is upward. All of the focus is on Christ, our high priest. All of our focus is on the heavenly things. We want our gaze in the ordinances drawn upward, not downward. If you need to be convinced of the, the wickedness of Roman worship, go read Deuteronomy 4. And you'll find yourself, as a result, persuaded thoroughly. We said that hope has a vision of confident expectation as well. Romans 8, verse 24, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. So we understand, first of all, what it means to see this whole business of seeing, the nature of seeing. But then secondly, seeing the unseen. Secondly, seeing the unseen. So here's the question this morning. Which is more certain, more substantial, more solid, in a sense, if you will, more real? The seen or the unseen? Because many, even Christians, think of God and angels and souls and heaven itself 
and the future glory, they think of these things as ethereal and as shadowy because they can't see them. When in fact, the exact opposite is the case. It is the unseen that is actually more solid and more certain. And if anything, this world is the shadowy part. We've been thinking about what it means to see. But how do we cultivate seeing the unseen? Colossians 3, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection or mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For we are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. We're to set our minds on things above. We're to seek those things that are above. So what is above then? What, what is that? What, what are these things that are above? What is unseen? What is invisible? What does it mean to be seeing the unseen? Here we're told it's heaven. That we're to be setting our minds, our affections, and seeking those things which pertain to heaven. And at the center of heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so like with Moses, we see him who is invisible. Heaven is the enjoyment of God, which, my friends, is infinitely better. The enjoyment of God is infinitely better than anything that can be found in this world. We sing it in the words of Asaph, Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. Right? Everlasting life starts right now, as you know. Not when you die. And so the heavenly focus starts right now. The believer is seated in the heavens. And so the present satisfaction of the soul must be in the enjoyment of God. Right? He is the object of true joy. That's what you see with Moses and David and Christ himself and the Apostle Paul end to end throughout the Holy Scriptures. As a consequence, the daily aim of the believer is to bring themselves to delight in God, to adore him, to worship him to thereby glorify him. But this delight stems from the sight of God. Sight leads to delight. But I could stand here all day long and tell you, you have to delight in the Lord and he needs to be your chief joy and this needs to be your chief business. But if you haven't had a sight of him, you'll never delight in him. And so for the unconverted, the call is to come and by the work of God's grace to look away unto the Lord himself and to lay eyes of faith upon him who is able to save to the uttermost. And for the believer, it is the daily grind, the fight that we're engaged in to see clearly what God has revealed of himself. And so the spiritual disciplines, things like our Bible reading and, our, and prayer and meditation and fasting and singing the Psalms and so on and so forth. The spiritual disciplines are never ends. 
right? They're not the thing that you put on your to-do list and then check them off like you're checking other things off your to-do list. They are means to something greater, to delighting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Augustine spoke of, quote, joy over Christ, in Christ, with Christ, following Christ, through Christ, where Christ dwells. We behold the glory of all that God is in his love, in his power, in his wisdom, in his truth, in his holiness, in his goodness. And we could go on all day, as you well know. And each of these opens up a whole nother world. And as we pass through that door and walk the path that the Lord's given to us in his word, we have one breathtaking vista after another, and we could spend all our time on one attribute alone and never tire of the delight that it brings to us. We saw last week, didn't we, from Ephesians 3, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. We saw that Christ's love is inexhaustible, that we can't plummet the depths of knowing the unknowable, of comprehending the incomprehensible. And the point is that this saving, this all-absorbing sight runs away with our hearts. Runs away with our hearts. Right? It captivates our affections. It preoccupies our minds. The question is, can you see it? Can you see him? Because if you can, you'll know something of that that, that, that engine, that furnace burning within the soul, how Christ's love does constrain us. That he who died and we who died with him would no longer live for ourselves, but would live wholly and entirely unto him who hath died for us. We so often stumble and fall because of our failure to see, our failure to see him. Clearly, to see is to love. And that produces the desire to give all, to withhold nothing. Some of you may be nodding inside yourselves. Saying, yeah, sure, this is true. I can see it. It's what the Bible teaches. But be careful, my friends. Falling in love with the idea of loving Christ should never be confused with actually loving him. You can fall in love with the idea of loving Christ. There's something rousing and stirring in us. It's not the same as actually loving him. You know, some might say, well, I know what this is like. It's like falling in love with someone you've never met in person. It happens, right? People begin in correspondence and they're in different locations and they're writing letters in the old days back and forth to one another, and they end up falling in love and eventually getting married. But that's actually not a good illustration of what we're talking about at all. Because it's not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not looking and seeing truly the unseen in terms of the unseen Lord Jesus Christ being somewhere else in a distant location. He is unseen, but
but he is present. He is near. He is with. He dwells in his people. We need to begin with the end, as always. Heaven is an object of seeing the unseen. We're to be lifting our eyes of our souls to the glory of heaven to come. Our destination, which for the believer is heaven, determines our, di our direction in this world. You know it when you left for church this morning. You either turned right or left or went straight. And what you chose to do det was determined by where you were going in this building. And every other intersection you came to. What controlled the decisions you made in those intersections was the destination. It's true for the Christian. Right? We're headed to heaven. And our, our gaze is fixed there. And that, that, that controls and determines our direction in this world. And you think of the example of Christ. You know, in, in Hebrews 2, we have looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And that's helpful, right? Because it's speaking about seeing. We're looking. We're looking unto him, the one who is the originator and the completer of, of our faith. But it goes on to say, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice the language. Who for the joy that was set before him. So what's happening in Hebrews 2, 12, 2, is we're being told, looking unto Jesus, look to Jesus, who is looking at something. Look at him. Look to him. What was he looking at? He had the joy that was set before him. The joy, the glory that was to come was in constant view of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ held up before his face, if you will, the joy of glory that was, was coming. So too, we are to look past the cross to the crown. We remember that the way up is the way down, that when you're hiking, you're standing in one place and you look over to the peak you're going to, you realize I have to go down into that ravine, down into that valley in order to get up there. It's true spiritually. The cross must be endured, but it is endured by the sight of the joy. Right? The cross and the crown. As we saw recently in Hebrews 8, the cross and the crown are not worthy to be compared. Right? The sufferings of this present life, cross, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The crown. The joy will be incomparable. And so seeing the joy transforms how we see the cross. Can you see it? We need this sight of the unseen. We need to see the glory that's to come. We need to be able to see the joy of all that the Lord has promised for his people in the sight of God through the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to see the resurrection. We need to think about the resurrection. Meditate upon the resurrection. And see it and know it. And hold it with complete confidence so that I know that these hands and feet and so on, they will be raised. It is so certain to me that it is as or more certain than the fact that these hands are here right now. That I can move them. That the feet are feet I can stand on and so on. That's what we saw in Job. Job was seeing from a way off clearly. And confidently, the unseen. 
the end of Job, which we read earlier. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself. Mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Right? The believer looks at what the Bible says in Matthew 13. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. At the resurrection of the dead, when God's people's bodies are raised, united with their sinless souls. You know, we can't look at the sun. We'll be blinded by it. When, 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 when Paul was struck down on the road of Damascus, a light shined from heaven that was brighter than the sun. And it blinded him. The Lord's people will shine like the sun on the last day. The glory is in, unimaginable to us that will be seen in us and through us. Daniel 12 says the same thing. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. But what do we know about this world in the future? What's going to happen to this world? The Bible says it's going to be burned with fire. It's going to be purified. It is, in the language of the New Testament, passing away. It will perish. Second Peter 3, seeing then that all these things must be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking, seeing, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. So we look and we see that the world is perishing. It's going to have implications, as we'll see more this afternoon. We can also look and see the imperishable reward of an eternal inheritance, that there is treasure that the Lord has in store for his people. Paul kept this before him all the time. He's always looking at it. Everything he was doing and everything he was not doing, all the sacrifices he had before his eye, the eye of his soul, this imperishable reward of eternal inheritance so that you get to the very end of his life and he's within a few weeks of leaving. And now he's, as it were, within reach of it. And he's still talking about it. Second Timothy 4, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at the last day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. Second Peter 1, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. An abundant entrance is given. What is this transient world in comparison? You know, you look ahead to the last day. What is the stuff of this world that that the world is so enamored by, the fanfare of this world. The goal for the Christian is to do now, not to be seen now. Who cares what man sees or what man says about our labors, whether we receive credit and recognition for what's done? 
You know, we'll, we'll often say to ourselves, well, my pursuits, the things I'm doing, you know, these are pursuits that are for Christ in the workplace and other things in life and so on. And that's a good answer. But is it true? Would you do the same thing in obscurity? Would you do the same thing if you didn't benefit? Would you do the same thing without any recognition? Jesus makes a big deal in the Sermon on the Mount between what is seen of men and what is seen of God. Prayer, fasting, almsgiving, and so on. What is seen by God who is unseen. But the believer is looking to this imperishable crown and the true fruit of our labors will be seen visibly when they are revealed on the last day. So what does Christ see of you right now? And what will Christ say of you on the last day? Will it be the words of Christ, as Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Right, this focus on the unseen, the, the foresight of the last day, it controls us. It obliterates the present, the, the praise of men or the lack thereof, right? We eschew the vanity of the world. All that matters is the verdict of the last day. We hold that up before the eyes of our souls. We look to it and we wait for it. We see God's hand in the events of our life. You know, here he is, and hard things are dealt out to us. Is that all we see? The vexation, the hardships, the pain? No, we see his sovereign will. We're led to trust him. We're led to submit to him. But we realize that, that submitting is not just a reluctant acquiescence. Because of what we see, we actually will his will, aligning our will with his will. Seeing him, he's good, he's wise, he's powerful, results in us actually wanting what he wants, whatever that may be. So in seeing the unseen, we do what we could never do with our physical eyes. We see higher and we see further even into the future, even into eternity. We, we can do what the meteor, meteorologists can't do in a single day or two days getting the weather right. The Lord in his word, by faith, enables his people to see all the way to the end of history. Well, then thirdly, we have seeing the seen. So seeing what is seen in light of what is unseen. So when I say the scene, I'm talking about what we see with our, our physical eyes, right? The world, the material, the tangible, the externals upon which we set our physical eyes. You recognize sight is a powerful sense. The things we see, it affects us, it directs us, it controls our thoughts. That's why we sing in Psalm 101, set no wicked thing before your eyes. But we also just heard that we walk by faith, not by sight. Then what do we do with the, with the world? What do we do with what is seen? How do we approach it? Do we relegate it to the dustbin? 
The answer is no, because Scripture says that God created it, and it was created good. Revelation 4 says, Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. They're created for his pleasure, not in the first instance ours. But we abuse the things of this world, and briefly, we can abuse the things of this world in three ways. There's more, but these are three important ones. The first problem is, is foundational, is fundamental. God designed the things of this world, the things below, to turn our eyes to what is above, to the spiritual and heavenly realities. So we need to use what is seen as God intended. It was made to point beyond itself, above itself. In other words, the created order, this world, is a window, not a wall. What does that mean? It means that we are not to look at what is seen, but we are to look through it. Not to look at it, but to look through it. So that even what is seen serves as a springboard to what is unseen. Our interface with the, the, the things of earth actually feeds our spiritual mindedness. Everything we see should draw us to what is unseen. The Bible says so, Romans 1. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. The seen draws our eyes into the unseen. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. You go to Job 12, and we're told, Ask now the beasts, the fowls, the earth, the fish, for they will teach and tell and declare unto thee. Things of this world are to point us. The things that are seen are to point us to what is unseen. Christ's parables illustrate this. You've heard me say it before, and I get it from Edwards. Jesus wasn't just saying, okay, here's the lilies of the field, here's the sparrow, here's the water and uh, bread and other things, and now let me think of a creative analogy to use this to teach a spiritual thing. Jesus was actually pulling it out what God had put in to those things. The truths that God had created them with. They were created to turn the mind to spiritual things. Well, we sinfully sit on the surface. Our senses, they pull our gaze downward. But the world is not a wall. It is a window through which we look upward beyond the heavens. We don't look at them, we look through them. One of the best illustrations of this in the whole history of Christian literature is John Broad of Haddington's Christian Journal, which Grange Press will be reprinting. Phenomenal. A whole book, easy reading, where he basically takes you through all the details of daily life and turns every object into something that brings your heart to heaven. 
illustrating what this looks like. Well, the second abuse. The second abuse, which flows from the first, is inordinate affection for the things of this world. If you're looking at them without looking through them, they will become the object of your desire. But this world cannot take the place that belongs to God alone. It'll result in earthly mindedness, which is death. That's the, that's the word God uses. Earthly mindedness is death. Our, our senses not only pull our gaze downward, they also can feed all of our carnal appetites when we lose sight of the superior pleasures of what is unseen. And you know as well as I do, this is a very difficult, it is very difficult to break this vicious cycle. Well, what's it take, Pastor? We need a vision, a sight of something that is far greater, something far better. We need the preeminent of we need the pursuit of preeminent pleasures like we sing of at the end of Psalm 16. The sight of Christ, the sight of heaven, the resurrection, the glory to come, all these things, the realities of heaven at present, they teach us to avoid like the plague inferior joys. What we need is det spiritual detachment from this world. This afternoon we're going to go into what that looks like. The detachment mind you, the detachment of our head, the detachment of our heart, and then the detachment of our hand from the things of this world. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. People say, well, I want the world plus Christ. I want both. And so we will we'll like corral Christ into a little pin where he's manageable. And the Lord is saying, no, you can't have both. You can't serve two masters. It's one or the other. The third abuse is to view this world as home. For the believer, it is not. To, believe it, to, to, to view it as home when it is not. The Christian citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3. For our conversation or citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look. For the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. This sets our priorities and our pursuits, our heavenly citizenship. We labor for our homeland and no other. We refuse to, to, to labor for any other. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the world will say, like it said to Festus, when, like Festus said to Paul, Paul came to Festus and spoke to him about the unseen. And Festus said, well, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. That's what the world's going to say to you. You're nuts. You're nuts to think this way. To view your life and the world this way. But it's important. The believer's identity is shaped by being a self-conscious pilgrim, a foreigner, an alien, a sojourner. That brings with it an inescapable sense of disconnect 
You have to feel that. Our heart is in heaven. Our unqualified allegiance is to Christ's kingdom. We shouldn't try to escape the reality of not belonging, of not fitting in, of not being of this world. Yes, you are in the world, but not of the world. We are in it, just like sometimes we are in a hotel. But you would consider a person insane if they treated a hotel like home. I'm going to go out and buy new sheets and hang plants, and I think I'll remodel here, and I'm going to invest in a new sink, and you know, do all, you think, what are you, crazy? This is a hotel room. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. You're not building your nest in a forest that has been marked to be cut down, as Rutherford says. Biblical religion is all or nothing. Christ is either all in all or nothing at all. We have to love him with all of our hearts and souls and mind and, and strength. The modern Reformed have a this worldly view of the Christian life because they have a this worldly view of heaven. The absence of the beatific vision results in earthly mindedness. Now, some of you are going to object. You're going to be thinking to yourself, you know, the... The gears are grinding, and you're saying, you know, listen, Christians in the U.S. have drilled into their minds. But, you know, but, 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 we're supposed to enjoy God's good gifts, right? I mean, we're supposed to enjoy good coffee and other things and so on, right? Wrong. You say, what in the world? How can that be said? So, what do you mean? Wrong. Children, remember your catechism. Catechism teaches us that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We use the gifts God's given us as a means that bring us to the giver. From the creature to the creator. And all of it leads to the enjoyment of the Lord himself. Why is this important? Because the enjoyment of the gifts as ends in themselves constitutes idolatry, which Romans 1 rails against. This builds on an insight from Augustine who distinguishes between enjoying and using the things of this world. Edward spoke of the gifts of this world, and he said this, These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Some of you who are sharp are thinking to yourself, well, First Timothy 6 verse 17 says, that God giveth us richly all things to enjoy. What about that? Well, let's not rip things out of their context. Go back and read the whole section, verses 17 to 19. He starts by talking to those who are rich in this world, not to be high-minded, but to be trusting in the living God, and so on. So it begins with a Godward focus. 
And then it goes on to define what that enjoyment means. And it maintains the Godward focus. It means using these things with the Lord and for the Lord. It says, so that they do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. In other words, eager to give away to others, not for the pleasure of themselves. It goes on to show the aim, heavenly treasure, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. The end makes clear the present. Is heaven enjoying God's gifts, God's other gifts, as ends in themselves? No. Heaven is the beatific vision, enjoying God himself. You know, your friend, someone, you know, a friend invites you over. They put all sorts of work into it, buy good food, make good food, spend all day cooking. They come and bring you to a meal and so on so that you will enjoy it with them. And you come, you sit down, you gorge, stuff your face, and ignore your friend entirely. They talk to you, you don't listen, you don't look at them, you don't say anything to them, you get up, wipe your mouth, and walk out the door. You say, that's terrible, right? He, he did the, they made the food, you know, for, for fellowship with us. But it's more than that. Not only does, is the believer doing that when they take God's gifts without the gifts leading to the giver and the enjoyment of him. Christ's gifts, the gifts of this world, are just the context for enjoying him. The whole purpose is for enjoying him. If you've lost that, you've lost absolutely everything. The problem is practical atheism. Living as if God is not here and enjoying something without him. And that is only possible by turning your back to him. Because he is here. And you've forgotten. You go to Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 to 10, and the Lord enumerates all these gifts and blessings he's going to bestow on his people. Then he says in verse 11, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God. He goes on to say, You're going to be soaking in your stuff. Then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God. He says, and it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God and walk after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that ye shall surely perish. You and your stuff end up on the garbage heap. The Lord says, love not the world, nor the things in this world. You're not to be in love with the things in this world. Right? There's a contrast, loving this world versus loving the next world. Love for the things in the world versus loving Christ who is outside the world. It begins with our heart. What do we love? Who do we love? And then our love being fixated on Jesus Christ changes our perspective. As the passage says there in 1 John, we look upon that which is passing away over against that which abides. And that perspective changes our pursuits. The things in this world versus the will of God. I mean, there's Demas, and Demas does the unthinkable. He forsakes Paul, having loved this present world, rather than loving the world to come. He turns his back on the light and runs into the darkness. 
he did not see, as he ought to have seen. And so you can see how seeing the seen, things of this world, is transformed by what we what, by what is unseen. So that even the things of this world lead us in our thoughts to the things above the world to come, that which is unseen. Well, as I said, this morning we're merely considering some of the roots. The question is, what are the implications of this? I mean, what, what difference does seeing the unseen actually make? And some of the biblical answers may initially unsettle you, may even disturb you. They'll certainly stretch you, they stretch me, but with the blessing of God, they could also liberate and transform you. And so if the Lord spares us, we'll move from the principles to the punch this afternoon when we consider the fruits of seeing the unseen. Stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, the invisible God, whom thy believing people look upon in faith, seeing him who is unseen. O Lord, grant that we would understand what it means to live as a Christian. Give us, O Lord, to live with our heads above the things of this world, for our hearts to be in heaven before our feet are found there. Give us, O Lord, the ability to see clearly, to see truly, to not be duped in unbelief, to not walk about in the murky darkness. Give, O Lord, that the unconverted would be brought by the Spirit to behold Christ, to see him who is crucified. Grant that thy people would be enabled to enjoy a sustained sight of the Redeemer. And help us, O Lord, as we work out what the Word says regarding the implications of these things to our life. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.